Well, that's not something you have done yet. We would love to have a conversation with you once the service is done. We'll talk to you about uh, what it means to follow after Jesus. Uh, hopefully, that's an encouraging uh, message, uh, hope, encouraging video for you. Uh, we've been learning a lot as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Those were highlights from Act 2, the section of Luke's Gospel that we're calling Meeting Our Savior. So what we've been doing in this section is looking at Jesus' public ministry. And today is the final message in that section. Next week, we're going to be going on the road with Jesus. So I'll invite you this morning to join me in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is where we are today. We're going to be examining Luke uh, 9, 1 to 50 with a particular emphasis on verses 18 to 27. Um, big section. We're going to cover, go some, do a flyover in a few of them uh, and dig into certain sections. Uh, the last few chapters of Luke have been pretty miracle heavy. Uh, we've, we've seen people flocking to Jesus to hear his preaching, to receive his healing uh, touch, to be set free. And then in Luke chapter 9, there is a, a bit of a shift. Jesus now invites his disciples to join the mission, and it begins this way. Uh, and he called, to the 12, called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, up until this point in the story, Jesus has been demonstrating his power over the supernatural, and the text tells us Jesus uh, has been amazing and astonishing people. People have been amazed and astonished. Those words have been repeated over and over again in these, uh, in these chapters. But now Jesus calls his closest followers together, the people he's been training, and he delegates his authority to them. He says, now it's your turn. Go. He's sending his disciples to proclaim the reign and power of God to the people of Israel and then by extension to the world. Now, how do you feel about this mission? What if Jesus showed up today and looked at you and said, now you do it? How would you respond? You might say, Jesus, that, that mission that I just read here in verses 1 and 2, that sounds impossible, which, which actually might be a good title for a movie. Which, by the way, I don't think Tom Cruise has aged in about 30 years, no matter what he does. Now, the more seasoned folks in the room may remember the original TV series in the 1960s always began with some outrageous task followed by this line. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. And then you cued some music. It began right away. Dun, 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 dun. You were off and running as you were going, right? Now, the current uh, movies have uh, ditched uh, some of those lines and whatever, but in the latest trailer, we still open the movie with Agent Ethan Hunt being spoken to, and, and the, the agent that's talking to him says this, our lives are the sum of our choices. This mission of yours, Ethan, is going to cost you dearly. And then cue the music, and it's followed by scenes of war and car chases and battle sequences, and it ends with Tom Cruise on a motorcycle riding on the side of a mountain and jumping off a cliff. A cliff. You can go and watch it today. That's apparently where the mission took him. But you know what I was thinking about this week? Following Jesus sometimes feels like that. Right? Like we're living in a world that's growing increasingly hostile to the gospel, and, and secular, secular, secularizing messages are, are everywhere, going against the Christian worldview. You just can't escape them. And, and you look around, people are looking at you cross-eyed at your faith, and it looks like there's a cliff you're about to jump over. 
And yet Jesus still says, go and proclaim the kingdom. I've delegated my authority to you. It feels impossible. And I think that's the tension Luke is raising in chapter 9. That following Jesus is a daily choice to trust him as you jump. Following Jesus is costly. It's scary. And the hostility you might feel is captured in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. After they're going out, it says this. And wherever they uh, do not receive you, Jesus says, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet, like Taylor Swift says. Shake it off your feet. I get a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, what I want you to see here, though, is notice there's an assumption that in some places you will not be received when you proclaim the kingdom. And yet they still went. They jumped. And if you read the Gospels and you read Acts as a follow-up, you will see there's a lot of people who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. That the disciples got chased out of town. Some of them got stoned. It was costly to follow after him. In fact, I would say the disciples show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in an anti-Christian age. That's the title of the message uh, today. Now, the truth is, being a Christian has always been hard. We have an enemy who prowls around like a lion, who's attempting to garner certain people to his uh, side. Church history tells us that persecution is the norm, not the anomaly. However, the anti-Christian sentiment in America, at least culturally speaking, is a bit of a newer phenomenon. This is what author Aaron Wren writes in his book, The Negative World. He says, the negative world, or a world that's hostile to Christians, is more than just a phase in recent American history. It represents something fundamentally new. For the first time in the 400-year history of this country, society now disfavors Christianity. So it's not new in world history, but it feels a bit new in American history. And as such, there's some lessons we can learn from people that go before us. If you back up about 100 years to the 1940s, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer penned the famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, because following Jesus in Nazi Germany was a tall task, but that was his time. And reflecting on that task, he outlined the concepts of cheap grace and costly grace. Now, you might ask, what's the difference? Well, cheap grace requires nothing of us, he says. There's no forgiveness, there's no uh, repentance, there's no confession, there's no sacrifice. It doesn't change your life, and it doesn't advance the kingdom. In fact, he says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Instead, we have to, we have to fight for costly grace. Now, what's that? Well, he captures it this way. He says this, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it's, it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. We were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Or if I put it another way, costly grace is the grace that's going to change your life. And if you're going to follow Jesus in the negative world, the message of the gospel, the costly grace, that has to get deep down in your heart. 
Only then will you jump to follow Jesus when the world is against you. So how do you live that out? What does it take to follow Jesus in an anti-Christian age? Well, the rest of Luke chapter 9 outlines a blueprint. And so today I'd like to show you three components of following Jesus that I think will stand the test of time. And I'm convinced that if you don't have these, when the trials come, it's going to be easy to walk away. So what are they? Number one, you need a core conviction. Number two, you have to recognize it's a costly commitment. And then number three, you need the ears of a child. What's that all about? Well, we'll come to that in a few moments. But those are the components that are markers of a heart transformed by the costly grace of the gospel. So let's pray, and then we'll look at each of those in turn. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, your mercy, for your grace, for your love. Lord, thank you for Luke chapter 9. Thank you for the grace that we don't deserve. Lord, I pray today that you would transform our hearts, that you would show us what it means to follow you no matter what, to trust you even as it feels like we're jumping off a cliff, Lord God, to know that you're the one who's going to help us as we soar on your wings, that we will run and not faint, as you tell us in Isaiah. Help us today, Lord. Challenge us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so first, you need a core conviction. A core conviction. Now, let's, let's define the word conviction. Conviction is a, uh, a strong persuasion or belief, or a strong persuasion of belief, I should say. In other words, it's not just a thought. It's not just a notion. It's not something that you can live without. No, it is something that... Uh, will drive you to, to jump off that cliff, not literally, but figuratively speaking. So when I talk about a core conviction, it's this deep belief that's so deep in your soul, you hold it so strongly that nothing will cause you to let go of it. And following Jesus requires a core conviction specifically about his identity and his mission. Look at the question Jesus asked his disciples in chapter 9, verse 20. He says, who do you say that I am? The chapter is going to lead to that. Who do you say that I am? If you're going to tell people about Jesus, you have to have a core conviction about his identity. Now, last week, we began a new class in the education building on contagious faith. We just had our second week this morning. It's a course on evangelism, about how we're skilled to proclaim and share the kingdom through our actions and through our words. Uh, they, we just finished the second week today. If you still want to join, we, we still got some room, I think. I'll check in later on that. Uh, but the heart of the class is the heart of this, this passage today. We want people to know Jesus and to enter the kingdom of our great God. Now, part of the class speaks about key essentials of sharing the faith. In order to share your faith, in order to build the kingdom, you must have something to give away. You must have something to give away. Nobody's going to catch faith if you're not contagious, Hence the title, right? It, 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 you need a core conviction. You need the love of Jesus oozing out of you. It needs to overflow onto others. And that stems from a core conviction about his mission and his identity. So back in Luke chapter 9, after the opening scene, Luke offers his version of the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And I want you to notice how it begins. Skip down to verse 10. It says, on their return... So remember, the, the apostles, the disciples, they've gone out. They've been doing all this work that Jesus called them to do. They return, and they told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, that Jesus is in town, they followed him. They, they came, and they welcomed him, and they spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need 
of healing. So on their return, basically the disciples have gone out on their first tour of duty, and they're coming back for a debrief with Jesus, but they're interrupted by these huge crowds because word has gotten out that Jesus is there. They want to meet him. And now we got some logistical problems. Now we got some problems. The disciples are not prepared, and they beg Jesus to send these people away. But instead, Jesus decides to give some on-the-job training. Verse 13, he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, okay, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now, I got to tell you, we have events here, not maybe not 5,000 people, but if, if I had an event here, even a couple hundred people, and we didn't have any food, I'm not just running down to ShopRite to quickly get food for 500 people. It, it's, it's a big task. Do you see the problem here? Jesus has sent the disciples out in his power, and now they encounter this moment where they really need Jesus' power. And they try to fix it in their own strength. All they see are 5,000 people, five loaves, and two fish. And what Jesus is doing is offering them a chance to recognize his power and his identity. And Jesus, of course, you know the story, he goes about and he feeds the people and they're satisfied. But what I want you to notice here is that Jesus could have immediately done this miracle on his own, and he doesn't. He says, you give them something to eat. He's inviting the disciples into his work. Notice what they don't recognize. They don't recognize the power and resource they have in Jesus. And the same can be true for us. I'll give you an illustration. Imagine you're driving your electric vehicle down the road, a really beautiful road right here, by the way. Your Tesla's cruising down the road, and you're moving along, and your battery is about to run out of charge because that happens. You know that there's a supercharger nearby, like maybe down at Dewey Meadow at Dunkin' Donuts, but instead of going down to the supercharger, you decide you're going to let your battery power run out, and then when the car stops, you're going to get out of the car and try to push it on your own strength to its destination. Wouldn't it be easier to go and have stopped at the supercharger and gotten charged up? See, in the midst of the problem, the disciples missed the power source. They did not yet have a core conviction about Jesus' mission and identity. And what Jesus says is you've got to plug your cord into the supercharger. I'm right here. Now, the problem for many of us is that we're constantly questioning Jesus' power. Do you know what I mean? Right? We may believe in our minds that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but when the rubber meets the road, when difficult uh, problems arise, do you really believe that Jesus can do the impossible, like feed 5,000 people? It's a question of Jesus' identity. In Luke chapter 9, everybody is asking the question, who is Jesus? You've got a couple groups of people. First, there's the powerful. So if you go back to Luke 9, 7 to 9, we meet a perplexed King Herod the Tetrarch, who beheaded John the Baptist, you may remember, and he has heard about Jesus. Now, if you read those verses, you'll notice that his interest in Jesus is more about Herod's own power. Herod killed John because he was a threat to him, and now he hears that Jesus can raise the dead. So is he going to bring John back? Is this Jesus somebody I should worry about? And so he asks the question in verse 9. John I beheaded, but who is this? Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him because he wanted to know, who is this? Who is this guy? I got to see for myself. Even today, powerful people have lots of views about Jesus and certainly about Christians. And those views can sometimes influence our actions and our convictions if we're not careful. The second group of people 
that we see in here are the crowds. So first there's the powerful, and then there's the crowds. And we live in an age where crowds are everywhere, like democratized information, social media, internet. There's crowds out there. People say lots of things in the digital space. They got views about Jesus. They got views about Christians. Now, in Jesus' day, his notoriety, like today, uh, was everywhere, and rumors have started, and Jesus wants to know, what are the people saying? What's the tweets going out in the ancient world about me? Verse 18, if you skip down there. Now, it happened that as he was praying, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Oh, but others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So you got Herod, this powerful elite person who wants to know who Jesus is. And then you got these crowds, the masses that are coming up with a bunch of theories. And Jesus says, all right, what's out there? What are you hearing through the grapevine about me? And some say, well, maybe John, you know, Elijah. If you go on the internet today and you type in, who do you think Jesus is? I bet you will come up with a, a bunch of wild answers. In fact, we have to be careful. We don't get on the path of the misinformed. In fact, Elisa Childers who is uh, the main speaker for next year's uh, Contend Conference that we're hosting, uh, she has made countering misinformation about Jesus a centerpiece of her ministry. Uh, in her new book, she tackles the topic of deconstruction. Now, if you don't know what that is, deconstruction is a process where people start rethinking their faith without regards to Scripture as a standard. And that's become very popular in certain circles. So if you or somebody you love is walking through that, Elise is a great resource but what she says is that deconstruction begins with questions, like in Luke 9. And she warns, she says, deconstructed beliefs nearly always begin with questions. It's not that questions are bad. Questions can be good, but not all questions are honest questions. When it comes to faith, some questions seek answers, some questions seek exits. Because it's a question about Jesus' identity. Do you want to find out who he really is? You can also check out our newest, um, our newest underground interview I did with Steve D. Sebastian on misinformation on Jesus, uh, looking at his identity and what the Bible says and his message. Really good interview. I invite you to go check that out. Um, lots of good resources because we have to be careful we're not influenced by the powerful in the crowds. And now we come back to Luke chapter 9, verse 20, and Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter, and he asks the question of all questions. It's a question everybody, deconstructing or not, has to answer, what does he ask? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you say? Everybody else has their opinions. What's yours? So let me pause for a moment and just recognize, this is a crucial watershed moment in the entire Gospel of Luke. Because up until this point, we've read about Jesus' birth and mission. That was the first part. Luke 3 to 9, we met our Savior. Jesus' public ministry, his miracles, his teaching. He was gaining notoriety. But now, 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 now is the moment of decision. Essentially, Jesus says to his disciples, listen, you've been with me. You've watched what I can do. You've heard my words. You've seen my power. What do you think? What do you think? What will they say? Do you remember? It's Peter that steps up very famously. Steps up to the plate and it says, Peter answered, you're the Christ of God. 
You've got to highlight that verse. It's in all the synoptic gospels. You are the Christ of God. After this moment in Luke, Jesus' tone completely changes. Now that they recognize him, now that they said his identity, he speaks differently. And this right here is what I mean by a core conviction. Because when you see Jesus for who he is, when you recognize that he is the Christ, it's got to get deep down in your heart and transform your life and mission. It's, it's then that you can start to jump off that metaphorical cliff for him. No resistance stops you. It's the reason that throughout church history, when the church has gathered together and put together creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, there was a huge focus on who Jesus is, identifying his life, his mission, his work. Now, Jesus' response is interesting. If you skip down to verse 22 and 23, it says this. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, from here on out, Jesus is going to start talking about his death. You say, man, really? Yeah, because that's his mission. And the reason he tells them to tell nobody is because he knows the background of Messiah. That in Jewish thought, Messiah will be this political leader who leads a revolution. And if people knew or thought that he was Messiah, it might cause this confrontation with Rome and distract from his real mission, which was the cross. The upside-down kingdom. Now, notice Jesus starts talking about suffering and rejection. He's highlighting that the mission is going to be hard. It's going to require death. And if we're going to follow him, we need that core conviction that he is the Christ. Because following Jesus turns our lives upside down. Now, the reality is if you believe Jesus is the Christ, he also has authority in your life. Commentator Mark McKinley identifies five areas that following Jesus should turn upside down. And I must say, these are hard areas because each of them can have deep grips on our heart. So let me just talk about them briefly. The first area he mentions is finances. Because he knows money touches every area of our, every area of our lives. It's not simply money. It's what money allows us to do and the power that it brings. So Jesus is going to say more about this in later chapters in Luke, but for now, I will just ask, how does following Jesus cause us to view our finances differently? Ambitions. I might call this category dreams and goals. Perhaps you have a vision for your life. You have career goals. You got family goals. You got financial goals. You got educational goals. You got goals upon goals upon goals, and goals are good. But again, I would just ask, has following Jesus caused you to alter the end game of your goals? Sexuality. Now, perhaps you don't think God cares about sex. Maybe you think God should stay out of the bedroom or that he should not care about whom you date or marry. Christopher Yuan, going to be the speaker at our underground session, speaks about this topic, holy sexuality. You should go sign up. It's going to be March 24th. He and his mom are going to give a testimony in the service, and then he's going to give some talks in the evening. Well, the premise of his work here is that God cares about holiness, and our lives need to be brought under Christ's lordship, including sexuality. When that happens, we change. Yuan says this. He says, the opposite of every sin is holiness. Change isn't the absence of temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way. But listen to this. Change is the ability to be holy even in the midst of temptation. I'm going to say that again. Change is the ability to be holy 
even in the midst of temptation. How? The power of God is not in human effort, but in the work completed on the cross. The cross, which is where Luke is taking us. How does following Jesus change your view of sexuality? Two more areas quickly. He says entertainment. Does God care about the entertainment I choose to consume? Well, if Jesus wants your whole heart, I think he does. He wants to transform your mind. Jesus cares about what we watch. Relationships. Jesus famously said we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're going to get to that passage in a couple weeks. That statement radically transforms our relationships because following Jesus changes everything. Costly grace changes all areas of our lives. And if you have a core conviction that Jesus is the Christ, your life is upside down. And if those areas are hard to let go of, it may be that God is calling us to die a deeper death. And that's where Jesus takes us in the second point, a costly commitment. Now, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 27, is one of the more well-known passages in Luke's gospel. If you've ever heard a missionary talk or share their testimony, you can probably quote a couple of these verses. Because following Jesus is costly. Let me give you a quick illustration. Uh, we do a family budget in our house, and Amanda and I have agreed that there's a purchase threshold where if we're going to spend above this amount of money, we have to talk to the other person. Anybody else do this? Right? You can go and buy all the $10 items you want, and you don't need to check in. But if you're going to spend like $500 or maybe more or less, depending on your, your budget, you got to talk. Why? Because we recognize that the items we're purchasing that cost a lot of money are a commitment. Right? You're going you're to delegate your money in a certain area and it can't be used in other areas. It's costly. And so when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is saying the same thing. You have to be all in. You, you don't live for Jesus for an hour on Sunday. And then forget about him the rest of the week. It's, it's everything. What does it take to follow Jesus in an anti-Christian age? You got to count the cost. And Jesus links the cost to his previous words about mission and starts to outline some conditions for discipleship. Very famously, verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow me, you have to what? You have to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I want, you to, I want you to read that verse again to yourself and ask yourself, what does that mean? Like, are those just words on a screen or is that real? What does it mean for you? Because what Jesus is doing here is he's portraying a vivid, shocking, and horrifying image. Now, we take it for granted that we're 2,000 years removed from Roman crucifixion. Okay, no, no, we're not hearing today about people getting crucified in places, at least, at least not in the news generally. It's in the history books, but for the disciples, that's what they were living with. Like crucifixion in that day happened on a regular basis. It was gruesome. It was horrific. So put yourself in their shoes. Right, the image that he's talking about here was taken from the Roman custom where a, a condemned person would carry his crossbar or their crossbar to the site of their execution. It was this public processional, right? Literally, people are walking to their funerals. And what Jesus is applying here is this. The person carrying their cross knows their life in this world is finished. That's what he's trying to convey here. In other words, if I take up my cross and I follow Jesus, there's no turning back, as the song says. 
Jesus predicted his death, and he's telling his disciples, if you want to follow me, this is the road. Are you going to jump? Are you going to follow? Now, I want you to notice a few other points in the verse. First, denying yourself is more than just putting aside worldly pleasures. Because you might say, okay, listen, I I regularly deny myself uh, uh, coffee or uh, chocolates or a burger for a time. I'm fasting. But this verse right here is not... It may include that, but it's talking about much more. It's talking about disowning yourself. It's talking about turning from the idolatry of self-centeredness. And that is blasphemy in our modern age. I hope you're starting to see what Jesus is getting at. That if you want to follow Jesus in an anti-Christian age, you first need the conviction in the person and mission of Christ... And that's going to then lead to a costly commitment. Now, I want to pause for a moment and ask you, what are, when you listen to messages in the world, what do you hear about the self? When was the last time you heard an advertisement or a TikTok video or a politician speak about self-denial? Instead, the God, the ruling idol of our age is what? Radical self-expression. I can do what I want I can live how I want. I can be who I want. I can, whatever I want, I can do. Why? Why? Because I'm following my heart. Or I'll put it another way. We, we no longer worship God. We too often worship ourselves. Author Thaddeus Williams notes that self-worship is actually the world's fastest growing religion. He cites a bunch of Barna stats that talk about Americans believing that the highest goal is to live, and enjoy it as, live life and enjoy it as much as possible. The best way to find yourself is by looking inside yourself. He mentions other things, but I, I, and I suspect you know this, like, inherently. But I, I want you to see, self-worth, this is the opposite, the complete opposite of what Jesus is calling us to do. That if you want to follow Jesus, don't follow your heart. To follow Jesus, you've got to become a heretic of this self-worship religion. And Luke says it's a daily action, which is different than Mark's account, Mark emphasizes the one-time event. Luke says this is daily, it's continual. Every day you've got to take up your cross and follow him. Amen. And Jesus doesn't stop there, he keeps going. Verse 24, he says, Forever would, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And you say, come on, Jesus, really? Isn't it enough that I'm denying myself, now I've got to die? Jesus would be a terrible salesman for life insurance. Now, to be sure, this is death language. Right? Here's the crazy part. He's saying here that only through death can life be found. He's using a profound image. Death, death is what brings life and salvation. It's a foreshadowing of his mission, of the cross. It was a radical message then and now. Why? Because so many of us have a comfortable view of Christianity. I'll go to church and I'll talk about Jesus or think about Jesus as long as, as long as I like the music, right? As long as they got something from my kids. As long as the preaching is inspiring and they don't go too long and they don't ask for money. Then I'll give some time to Jesus. Does that sound like the ask that Jesus is making here? Deny yourself. Carry your cross to your death. Lose your life. But in the end, you'll save it. That's what Bonhoeffer meant by costly grace. And if you're pushing back on that idea, Jesus has a simple question. Verse 25, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself or loses himself? 
We got to sit with these questions. Like he's asking real questions here. This is the question. You can go through life living for yourself. You can climb over other people to get to the top. You can stay up all night so you get the good grade and sacrifice relationships. You can spend all your money on those exciting adventures. And he just says, what is it going to get you? You got one life. Right? Maybe you'll live 80 years, maybe longer, maybe shorter. That's the average lifespan, and it's going down. In the end, you're going to die for real. We covered that theme in Ecclesiastes last year. You can go back and watch those messages. But Jesus says, is it worth losing your very soul, living for yourself? He's asking that to us. And then, verse 26, he's got a real sobering verse. He says this, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, and the glory of the Father and of all the angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, this verse right here is the reason many don't follow Jesus. Because of shame. Shame. Have you seen some of those videos on the internet of what people do, like on college campuses and elsewhere, to people who don't agree with them? And they just shout, shame! Shame! It's, it's jarring. They try to catch it on video and then post it. Now, if people do that to you and post it on the internet, would there still be resilience? This is also why we believe baptism is meant to be a public profession of faith. It's the response to the costly grace of God. We got a lot of baptisms coming up in, in the next few months. It's an exciting time. And if you'd like more information about that, we'd love to talk with you. You can pick up a packet in the back and, and send us an email or catch us after the service. But the heart behind these words and these verses Whoever is ashamed, it's really about a loss of status. So if you go and share the gospel, if you try to build the kingdom today, will it cause you to lose status in society that you desire and that you've worked for? In John's gospel, what does Jesus say? He says the world will hate us because why? Because it hated him. And it's about a topic of trust. Will you trust and jump and know that Jesus has the power to work in the lives of people who want nothing to do with him. Will you trust that he can work through you? Or will you give in to fear and shame? Now, the second half of this verse is really a call for us to evaluate our lives in light of the future age. Jesus offers a final word of hope then, pointing to his victory through death and resurrection in the last verse. So in a sense, I think he's telling the disciples, I know it's going to be hard. I know it's, it's rough. But in the end, it's going to be worth it. Victory, in the end, will be the reward. So what does it take to follow Jesus in an anti-Christian age? So a core conviction, a costly commitment, yes, but we do need some tools along the way. And so after this interaction, there's two scenes um, that I want to mention briefly. And I think they show us how we can have resilience in this mission. The first scene is all about spending time on the mountain. Immediately following Jesus telling the disciples to follow him, Luke recounts the famous scene of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. So Jesus climbs up with John and Peter and James, and they're all praying when all of a sudden there's this flash of light. I sort of picture it like when Gandalf the White returns in The Lord of the Rings. Look at how it's described. Verse, verse 29, if you skip there. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, 
And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They were groggy. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And they were like, wow, his face is altered. His clothing is dazzling white. They saw his glory. In other words, they saw Jesus for who he really is, his beauty and his power and his majesty as they spent time praying on the mountain. That's similar to how Moses experienced it. Exodus 33 and 34. He climbs up the mountain. He meets with God. He comes back down. He's so radiant, he's got to put a veil over his face. And now you got Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about what's to come, about his mission. My point is, they got up on the mountain and they saw Jesus for who he is. And so should we as we're going on this mission. If you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to intentionally, you need to intentionally spend time with him every day. Because you will, number two, walk through the valley. You got to spend time on the mountain because you're going to walk through the valley. Now it's interesting because after the scene of the mountain, they don't stay up there. They go back down the mountain to the mission and there's an interesting scene in the valley below. In fact, as soon as Jesus comes down, a crowd meets him and they start begging him to cast this demon out of a young boy. Very jarring scene. But it's a reminder to us that the reason we spend time on the mountain with Jesus is because we're going to go down in the valley to wrestle with the demons. If you're going to follow Jesus, there will be spiritual warfare. And Jesus again shows his power and he heals the boy. And then we read this in verse 43, if you skip there. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And that's what it's about. That's why we walk through the valley, so that, that's why we do the mission, so that people will be healed and set free by the power of the gospel, the majesty of God on display. What does it take? Conviction, commitment, but the road is long, there will be discouraging times, and that's where point number three comes in. You need the ears of a child. Now, some of you are asking, what in the world does this have to do with the rest of the points? I get conviction, I get commitment, but was Pastor Bob just looking for another C word? <laughs> Maybe so. But let me briefly mention this well, less well-known scene that's very instructive. After the demon-possessed boy, after that scene ends, Luke tells us that everybody is celebrating, everybody's marveling at what Jesus is doing, life is good. They're praising God. But remember I said earlier that after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the tone changes. And verse 44 is an example. Read this. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink in your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I love this image. Let those words sink in your ears. And I would add so that they will sink down to your heart. What does Jesus say? What is he doing? I think he's telling them and he's telling us that the celebration isn't always going to be there, that you're not always going to be on the mountain. You have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Suffering is coming. It is part of this death to life mission. And he's asking us, are my words sinking into your ears or is there a wax buildup? Look at that picture right there. I know it's gross. My wife is a nurse. So I know all about the wax buildup in the ears. Sometimes it clogs our ears. You got to clean it out. 
And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's crucial. He says he's going to die for us. And when he says you got to take up your cross, he is inviting us. He's inviting us to clean out your ears and to join him on the suffering of this mission. Are you ready? Are his words sinking down? Are they taking root in your hearts? Because the disciples don't get it. Like if you keep reading, you realize they're saying, huh? What is he talking about? In fact, the text tells us that they were afraid to ask him. They were, they were just saying, all right, this, this is awkward. Uh, can we just move on? It's kind of what's implied in the text. Their ears are clogged. Because the next moment, we read that the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest amongst them. Picture this scene. Right? They're celebrating. They're talking about how great Jesus is and what he did. And then... They're arguing about, I think, who Jesus likes the most and who is going to be used the most by him. So Peter's saying, anything you guys can do, I can do better. And then you got John over here saying, you know what? Anything you can do, I can do better. And back and forth and back and forth. And then we read this in verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, here's the child, and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So first the ears, now the child. What is Jesus doing? In the ancient world, children had no power, no status, no rights. They were insignificant. Many died in infancy in the Roman Empire. It was a child in the previous scene who was tormented by the demon. And Jesus is not necessarily using the child as an exemplar here, but he's teaching them a lesson. He's teaching them a lesson about true greatness. He's turning their worldview upside down. So on the mountain, God told the disciples about Jesus. We read that we heard a voice coming from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. What, are they, what does he say? Listen to him. And Jesus speaks and tells them to let the words that he's saying sink in their hearts. And then he brings out this child and says, the least among you is the greatest. Stop arguing about who's the best. And, and we do this, don't we? <laughs> we all like to have status and be liked and be accepted. We want, we want people to notice us. But Jesus says, you got to look after the least of these. You got to have the faith of a child. You got to listen like a child. And children are a great example, right? When kids are young, their hearts are moldable, very moldable. They're not, they're not as hard as when, when they get a bit older. My kids right now, they're, they're, still, they're still a little young, and, and they come to me with these big eyes, and they want to spend time with me, and, and they ask these questions, and it's right now that my words have a chance to sink maybe a little deeper than later. I got a chance to love them and, and serve them. And Jesus says, you got to receive these little ones. You got to serve them. You got to have, have faith like them. That's how you become great. With the faith of a child, because the road is going to get tough. You need the voice of Jesus to penetrate your heart as you follow him in whatever anti-Christian age you live in. What does it take? It takes conviction. It takes commitment. It takes the ears of a child. And when you have that in place, that jump off the mountain might not be so scary. So as the worship team comes back on stage for one last song, I want to take you back to the mountain for just a moment. Because as Peter and James and John were sleeping, and Moses and Elijah appear with this flash of light, 
There was a verse I skipped over, because as the disciples are watching Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus, we read this in verse 31. It says, Behold, two men were standing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So you got Moses, you got Elijah, you got Jesus all in one place. Wow. What a scene. What are they talking about? They're talking about the mission. That Jesus is about to leave for Jerusalem where he's going to what? He's going to deny himself. He's going to take up his cross. And he's going to lose his life. And Luke gives us a clue about the significance of Jesus' mission. I want you to circle that word departure because literally in the Greek, it can be translated exodus. What an image. Right? In the Old Testament, the exodus was the story of God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt by grace, parting the Red Sea, defeating their enemies. And now Luke is pointing us toward the new exodus, the ultimate once and for all exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. It's not cheap grace that he will purchase. It's costly grace that is going to be purchased with his spilt blood. And you remember in Exodus, the blood of the Passover lamb was painted on the doors of the people of God. And now the blood of the lamb is painted on the hearts of every one of his followers. Jesus is about to begin a journey to Jerusalem that's going to cost him his life so that we can find true life and be saved. That's the mission. That's the costly grace. And the biggest turning point in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem where he would die. To Jerusalem where the new exodus begins. Jesus is laser focused on the cross, of going to the cross. This is where the road is going to take him. So that he will give his life for us. That's where Luke is taking us for the next 15 chapters. Now we may live in an anti-Christian age, but the blood of the lamb still runs red to cleanse the hearts of his people. That the blood of the lamb is still effectual for all who call on his name. And the mission the Father sent the Son to accomplish is now lived out through his church as we take up our cross and follow him. What does it take to follow Jesus? Conviction, Commitment, the ears of a child. The ears of a child, as you hear the voice of the master calling you to follow, and what is he saying? He's saying, come, let's go on the road to bring healing and hope and salvation to all who need it. That's the new and the better exodus. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and your grace and your glory, Lord. We thank you for the cross, Lord. Help us to walk there. Help us as we're entering into the Easter season, Lord, to always be thinking about the cross, the cross, the cross where you would go, where you would bleed and die for us so that we might have life. The wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died for us because he loved us, Lord. Help us, help our love for you to grow Help our commitment to you to grow. Give us the conviction of who you are, Lord, and help us to have the ears to hear all the words you would say to us. We ask that in Jesus' name.